Hey there, everybody. It is Volts for February 2nd, 2022. Volts Podcast, using DOE loans to accelerate clean energy with Jigger Shah. I'm your host, David Roberts. Back in 2010, the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office briefly became what kids these days call the main character. The focus of a storm of controversy and media attention, thanks to the bankruptcy of Solyndra, a solar power company that had received the very first loan guarantee under Obama's Recovery Act and then promptly gone bankrupt. Despite that wildly overhyped controversy, the loan office did reasonably well under Obama. It ultimately turned a profit for the government and was arguably crucial to the explosive subsequent growth in markets for utility-scale solar and wind. Under Trump, the loan office basically went dormant, doing little beyond shoveling money into the ill-fated Vodal nuclear plant in Georgia. Now the loan office is being revived, reformed, and reinvigorated by new director Jigger Shah. Shah has a long history on the business side of clean energy. He was the co-founder and president of Generate Capital, and before that founded no-money-down solar pioneer Sun Edison. But he's perhaps best known to energy nerds as the co-host of the late-lamented podcast, The Energy Gang. He wants to streamline the process of getting loan guarantees from the loan office and rethink how the office approaches risk. And he's got about $40 billion to work with. More if Build Back Better ever passes. Under Shah's leadership, the loan office has been doing due diligence on the hundreds of applications that have flooded in since the office reopened for business. In December, it issued its first new conditional commitment for a loan guarantee to a plant in Nebraska that will transform methane into hydrogen and carbon black. Many more loan guarantees are in the pipeline. I've been looking forward to chatting with Shah about how the office is reforming under Biden, how to think about risk and communicate it to the public, and the kinds of clean energy technologies that have him excited these days. So without further ado, uh, Jigger Shah, welcome to Volts. Thanks for having me. I'm a, a longtime fan of your career and your many podcasts, so it's it's great to finally uh, get you on here. Well, you know the feeling's mutual. So I want to start with something very simple. I just would like to, you know, for the members of the audience who are not clear exactly what the loan program office is, maybe you could just give us like the elevator pitch version of what is the loan program office, what does it do, and what is it meant to accomplish? The Loan Programs Office was originally conceived of by Senator Pete Domenici in the 2005 Energy Act. It was really first funded in 2009 during Obama's stimulus. And the main rationale for its existence is that the Department of Energy just does so much great work on basic fundamental research. Mm -hmm. And it gets all these technologies to what they call technology readiness level seven, which means you can actually verify that the technology works. But then they sort of just leave them there, waiting for the private sector to pick them up and take them the rest of the way. And the private sector is saying, 
look, we're happy to do it, but we can't get any debt for these technologies because the commercial banks are saying, we don't really want to spend the effort to understand all the nuances of this stuff and get all the expertise lined up for one project. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, until there's 100 projects to do, we're not, we're not in. This is the famous uh, valley of death, is it not? That's right. And in this case, I'd say that it's a valley of death that focuses on debt. Because the vast majority of Valley of Death conversations mostly focus on equity, raising venture capital or raising private equity or that kind of stuff. And in this case, you're really talking about debt. And the other thing I would say is that when you talk about solving climate change, you're generally talking about trillion-dollar scale. Mm -hmm. And trillion-dollar scale only exists in infrastructure, right? So when you think about venture capital, we had a banner year last year. It was about $60 billion, Mm -hmm. right? It's not trillion-dollar scale. So the question is, what does it take for the trillion-dollar scale people to get comfortable with the technology? And that's a commercial debt conversation. And so that's like, how do we underwrite a deal for commercial debt? I'll tell you, I talked to most of the money center Wall Street banks last year, and they said, Jigger, one thing that we will confirm is that the due diligence that comes out of your office is of such high quality that we know that a technology is ready if it gets through your office. I think that's one thing maybe that like average people don't understand is that you're not just handing companies money. The whole process of sort of assessing the company and its technology and all that kind of thing, that's a very long and labor-intensive process. And that's the bulk of sort of the service you're providing the industry is, is not even so much the money as the due diligence itself so they don't have to do it, right? Oh, that's exactly right. And no one would subject themselves... <laughs> to the government process that we take them through, which is a lot more efficient and a lot shorter than it used to be. So I think we've made a lot of strides there. But they wouldn't subject themselves to the process if they could walk through the front door of one of these big banks and just get a standard commercial loan. They're going through that process and subjecting themselves to the detailed diligence and then the 10,000 expert scientists uh, and engineers we have at the National Labs because they know that this is the best way for them to get, you know, an average loan size for us is $500 million. Mm-hmm. So backing up a little bit, the loan office has been, let's call it uh, dormant. Uh, <laughs> for the That's last, certainly what the secretary called it during her confirmation hearing. <laughs> for the last four years, I believe, sub, uh, dumping money down the giant Georgia nuclear plant was the only thing it did. But before that, under Obama, you know, there was the whole stupid Solyndra controversy. But as I understand it, the loan office under Obama did well overall, ended up revenue positive, ended up spurring a lot of new industries. So I'm curious sort of like what you take from that experience and in what ways you're trying to improve, what needs to sort of change to make it more modern and more suited to current circumstances? Yeah, no, I think there's a series of questions implied there. And so let me take them one by one. I'd say, First, Solyndra was one of the first loans that we issued out of the office. It was very clear that the office was very young when we did that loan. Mm. And since then, the office has matured greatly. And I would say that we're up to 170 people from, I think, probably 20 people at that time. Mm. And we have a lot of processes and procedures. So Solyndra wouldn't have passed the office in the same way that it did in the past, right? And so, so the office has improved its processes tremendously. Even with the Solyndra losses included... We did about $35 billion worth of deals. We've had roughly $1.02 billion of losses, inclusive of Solyndra. That track record is something you would put up against any commercial bank in the space, let alone one that focuses on hard-to-finance deals. 
So there's a lot of people who suggest we're not taking enough risk. <laughs> and so, right, right. Um, so I'd say that in terms of what we're doing differently now, so in the Obama era, you can imagine we had a financial crisis. So we actually had a lack of access to commercial debt. Mm. And, you know, when you look at Elon's famous story at Tesla, um, he also had a problem getting equity, right? Like, you know, the money wasn't flowing like it is today with SPACs and all sorts of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so today, fast forward, and if you have a rock solid 20-year power purchase agreement with a utility company, um, you're generally not going to come to the loan program's office. Right. Um, unless you've got some really weird sort of long duration storage technology or something else that never has never been commercialized. And so... We have to do a lot of things differently. So when you think about the type of deals we see, first of all, they're far more diverse than just electricity, right? And so we see deals in the industrial decarb space. We see deals in the broader transportation space. And so the markets are less formed. So for instance, people sign power purchase agreements in the electricity space. Remember, a lot of that came from PURPA, mm -hmm. right? Which is what all the coal plants were based on, right? But when you look at like transportation fuels, for instance, people don't generally sign a 20-year fixed price contract for aviation fuel. Right. Right. And so we have to change the way that we underwrite deals to figure out how we support those kinds of projects, as well as merchant markets. So when you look at like the low carbon fuel standard credit program in California, which is driving a lot of projects, the, the price that gets set for those credits changes every month, mm -hmm. right? So we have to come up with a new way of evaluating those projects and figuring out how we support them. And so I would say that the loan programs office has gotten far more sophisticated about how it underwrites risk than it was forced to be, frankly. Not that they were not capable of it in 2010. They just didn't have to do it in 2010. And is that reflective mostly of changes in technology, or is that a ref is that reflective of a change in approach at the LPO to take a broader look at technology, or both? I'd say all of the above. I mean, in general, I'd say that LPO could get away with doing standard, easy to finance deals in 2009, 2010, because you had a historic credit crunch and right. people needed our money. Today, those standard, easy to finance deals aren't coming into the office, so we have to evolve to be relevant. But second of all, I think there were historic amounts of money invested during the, you know, Stephen Chu era and then Moniz era around new technologies. And a lot of those technologies are now mature enough to be able to come to our office. And so they made a lot of investments in industrial decarb. Remember, we had lots of high profile failures in carbon sequestration and storage yeah. in that era. But the new approaches are being built upon the success stories that we had. Like one of the success stories that came out of that era was the the ADM Class 6 wells, which continue to bury 1 million tons of CO2 a year into Class 6 wells in Illinois. You, you mentioned about risk, and it's interesting. The topic of risk is interesting, especially when it comes to government, you know, yeah. a, a, an arm of government. So the kind of right-wing critique of the office was that, oh, it's taking too many risks and it's losing money. But the sort of more educated kind of energy expert critique was it didn't lose enough money. The whole point is to take risks. I mean, that's why the thing exists, to take risks that private capital or banks won't take. So talk a little bit about how you think about risk, what the right level of risk is. Like, is there a percentage of losses that you're targeting or sort of like, is there, how do you target the right level of risk? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'd say that on the, the setup question, I'd say that, you know, as a government appointee, your ability to take risk is, you know, is defined by the amount of 
support that you're getting. Right. Right. And, you know, clearly the secretary mentioned the loan programs office in her confirmation hearing and has been talking about it ever since. Mm -hmm. So we're clearly getting a lot of support, which I think means the world to all of us. And it gives us the freedom to make the decisions that, you know, we think are right for the country and not just Mm -hmm. right for the political moment. So I think that's valuable. I think the second thing I'd say is that, so we don't view risk on a portfolio basis like that, although it does turn out that we check it that way. We view it on a deal-by-deal basis. So what we say is everybody in the office gets the same interest rate, which is treasuries plus three-eighths of a point. So that's 1.8%. And then we add a risk-based charge on top of it based on the percentage chance that it loses money. So the vast majority of our projects are not investment-grade. Right. So when you look at the other lending institutions within the government, whether it's the USDA programs or TIFIA or some of the other ones, they generally do investment grade credits. These are people that have triple B or better credit ratings. Our average credit rating in the office for new projects is sort of double B or single B, mm-hmm. right? Because it's by definition misunderstood. Otherwise, it wouldn't be coming to our office. And so those projects generally have a risk of failure of let's call it 15 to 20%, right? Depends on all the variables and we look at it all and all that stuff, right? So we then add an interest rate adder to the interest rate to be able to compensate the government for that risk of loss. Got it. So let's say we'll add another four percentage points to the interest rate. So now it's not 1.8, it's 5.8. And then that extra money goes into the US Treasury Department And then we do view our performance on a portfolio-wide basis. Today, the program adds about $500 million of interest payments per year to the U.S. Treasury, right? So we make money for the government. And, And then there's a separate component to that, right? So on a portfolio basis, you charge interest rates above the U.S.'s cost of borrowing to figure out whether we're earning enough excess interest, let's call it, to be able to cover any losses we have. And then separately, Congress sometimes appropriates loss capital to us, right? It's called a credit Mm. subsidy. So like for ATVM, which is the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, the Congress has determined that, look, some of these projects are clearly going to be risky because you're taking an if you build it, they will come risk. Like even if they make a great car, it could be that it's a terrible design and nobody wants to buy it, Mm -hmm. right? And so in that case, they actually allocate cash from the Congress to our program, and we pay that credit subsidy on behalf of those applicants. And so that basically forms sort of a loan loss reserve in the U.S. Treasury Department for those projects. And so to summarize all that, on balance, we've reserved almost $6 billion in loan loss reserves at the U.S. Treasury and have had a total of $1.02 billion in losses. And we don't expect very much more loss out of the existing $30 billion portfolio. Mm-hmm. And that's, let's say, the operational way to view risk. The semi-separate question about how to communicate risk and loss and the chances you're taking, maybe that's not your job. Maybe that's the job of the secretary. But do you feel like the office itself or the democratic government culture in general has learned anything about how to communicate risk. Cause as we saw, you know, with Solyndra, it's just so easy to demagogue and take some time to explain why risk is actually a good thing. Have you given that a ton of thought? Or are you leaving that to sort of the, well, I mean, on the political risk side of it, you know, clearly 
sometimes political arguments move away from logic and then you just end up like <laughs> in, a, in a place that's, you know, whatever it is. So sticking to the logic side of things where I think I'm more comfortable, I'd say <laughs> that like the way that we've talked about risk is we've talked about opportunity. Right. Even more broadly, when you think about the sea change that has occurred in the thinking of Americans and of other automakers, I mean, Ford Motor Company stock has gone up tremendously last year simply through the firm announcement that they're moving to electric vehicles, right? That all comes from the risk that we took mm -hmm. in 2009 and the opportunities that it has created for millions of Americans as a result. And so I think that the way that you know, the president's been talking about it, and certainly the secretary has been talking about it, is that this is the single largest wealth creation opportunity America has in front of it. And if we do it correctly, not only do we get to use our technology that we have ourselves invented through our dollars that we put in out of DOE, and we manufacture the products here, and we create the jobs here and all that stuff, but we also help the hundreds of countries around the world decarbonize through the export markets from our technology companies going externally. I mean, Tesla is the single largest exporter in California, which itself is the fifth <laughs> largest economy in the world. Tesla serves so many sometimes contradictory kind of symbolic roles at once, but one of them is definitely uh, uh, you give the market permission or give money, big money, big debt permission to come into these markets. And that just spirals out globally, right? It's almost it's almost difficult to trace all the consequences from that. It's like taking a, the finger out of the dike or putting the finger in the dike. I don't know what the metaphor is. Well, absolutely, <laughs> right? I mean, but the same thing's true for, um, for utility-scale solar and wind, which of course is right. a more boring story. But like, but when you think about what Europe was doing at the time, right? Europe basically had a feed-in tariff, which meant it had a guaranteed payment basically from the government, although it used the utility to pay it. And that was not the case in the United States. We had some power purchase agreements, but in general, the whole concept of this feed-in tariff thing really wasn't there. There was a tax equity portion with tax credits, and there was this kind of thing and that kind of thing. And when we offered our loan guarantees to SunPower, First Solar, and others who will tell you that they were essential to be able to build those plants, when they were completed in 2012... You know, Bank of America and Citibank and all those banks had not yet gotten their arms around how to support solar and wind, even though Germany and Spain and everybody else had had these big years in 2007, 2008. You were now sitting in 2012 with $1.5 billion projects, such that those companies were forced to sell those projects to Warren Buffett and Mid-American. And, you know, Warren Buffett and Mid-American always makes money. And so, <laughs> so it wasn't until 2014 that there was a modicum of a competitive market, right, that Sun Edison at the time, remember, had created with like the REIT that they created with Terraform and all that stuff. And then in 2016, you really got a lot more liquidity in the market. And it wasn't until 2019 that you had full acceptance by all institutional investors such that the interest rates went down to like two and a half percent. Another thing that I'm curious about is there's money uh, in the LPO. There's a certain amount set aside for fossil fuel technologies, like carbon capture and whatnot. There's a certain amount of money set aside for nuclear. And then everything else sort of competes for the remainder, which is, which is smaller than those amounts set aside for fossil fuel and nuclear. What is the logic of that? set up is that it doesn't seem to me at least to be derived from need so much as derived from 
politics somehow. Yeah, I mean, well, unfortunately, the truth is, is that we just used up the renewable energy money. Hmm. So all of the allocations that we received were received in 2009. Right. There was a little bit of sort of reshuffling that happened since then, but most of it's 2009. So we had 20 plus billion of renewable energy and efficient energy money. That money was largely used and we never issued a fossil fuel uh, loan, right? So that money is all unused. And then the nuclear part was bigger too, but then of course we have the Vodal nuclear plant that's used up a lot of the money. <laughs> Could absorb um, qu- absorb quite a bit. And so, so, so that money is still there as well, right? And so, what I would say is that you know, obviously, without getting into you know trouble, um, <laughs> the you know the Congress is very supportive of what we're doing, and they've basically said, look, there's a lot of support for the loan program on both sides of the aisle, and so just get the thing working again. Like you put some loan, like show us that it's actually working before we allocate more money to that bucket. So I don't think that that's as controversial as it appears. And we are getting it working. I mean, I think we've got 170 hardworking men and women, and I think they've done a great job of fixing the foundation of the program. I mean, it resulted in one conditional commitment in 2021, and we'll have a lot more this year. But I think that it belies how much fixing that we did in 2021 so that the foundation was strong enough to have a big year in 2022. Speaking of then uh, of politics and, and money, what did the bipartisan infrastructure bill do for the LPO? And then secondarily, what's in the Build Back, the, the uh, sure. a, as yet unpassed Build Back Better bill that, <laughs> that, uh, that relates to the LPO? Sure. So the the bipartisan infrastructure legislation has a number of provisions in it that broaden our authority. So it took the ATVM program and said, you now can do heavy trucks, light duty trucks, airplanes. And, bat- and battery stuff, right? Chargers? Chargers, or- locomotives. That's a big deal. And then I think somebody even included Hyperloop, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, uh, it, it, it is what Please it is. Please don't do that. Yeah. No, I, I haven't seen any good Hyperloop applications coming in. And then we also got, you know, a broader uh, level of authorities around uh, CO2 pipelines. So a lot of the work that we're doing, for instance, is on these industrial hubs where you're taking some of the places that have the most pollution in the United States, uh, like the LA Basin or you know the coast around Texas or Louisiana, and really decarbonizing those. And the hydrogen hubs, which is also in the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, marries with the CO2 pipeline authority that we have mm-hmm. to be able to help decarbonize all that heavy industry. So that's in there as well. So that's and then there's also one other provision which was little noticed in the legislation that says that if a state entity supports the applicant, that it actually uh, moves away from the innovation requirements of our office. So that's an interesting nugget that we're trying to figure out exactly what it means. But mm-hmm. but Senator Murkowski, I think, uh, had a big role in putting that in. But no new money in the bipartisan. Yeah, exactly. So the, the new authorities were put into the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, and then the additional money comes into the, you know, House, the House Build Back Better Act passed, and then obviously the Senate's, you know, working on it. But what I, one of the things I would say is that because we make money for the federal government, the Congressional Budget Office has largely determined that new authority that goes into Title 17 in particular only costs 1% in deficit spending of the loan amount that we receive. So if we wanted to do an extra $100 billion of loans, it would cost $1 billion of deficit spending. So it wouldn't 
take very much additional appropriation to sort of vastly increase the amount of capital that you have to work with. That's right. And again, I think that that's tied up in, you know, folks just saying, guys, like, prove to us that the office is working. <laughs> and so <laughs> right. get some conditional commitments out the door and get, you know, some of the companies that are in our districts to tell us that you really are open for business. I understand that you're telling me you're open for business. And I see this big graphic that says you're open for business, but <laughs> I'd like to hear a confirmation from, you know, our constituents. Right. Say uh, Build Back Better passes or say Congress got um, excited about this and dumped a bunch of money on you. Are there capacity constraints for how much you can get out the door? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how much yeah. could you possibly deploy before January 2025? Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time on that in the office the last five months, I'd say. And, uh, you know, the the office initially was extraordinarily optimistic about what it th thought it could accomplish, which, frankly, is amazing to see that level of risk-taking from, you know, the federal government staff that we have. It's it's really inspiring to see. And then, you know, I think that we've been a little more realistic about it in the, you know, delivery phase of January. But I still think that, you know, the office can, you know, like we've got about 77 applications that have come in as of 1231. Mm. And uh, representing roughly sixty billion of requests, and you know, I do think that we can get a third of those applications through the system, mainly because the applicants are sophisticated and competent enough to go through all of our stage gates efficiently to get to the other side. Then half of the ones that can't do that quickly, I think, will also get through our office. It'll just take them an extra period of time to cure, you know, the the defaults in their in their application. So I think that we can actually move quite a bit of volume through the process. And I would say that one thing I think is important to note is that if we obligated 30 billion dollars of capital, which, you know, is a is a big number, that would make us the single largest provider of this kind of capital in the world. And so, like it's not like JP Morgan Chase or some of these other companies are like chomping at the bit to do first of a kind deployments or <laughs> whatever else, right? They're coming later in the process, right? And so so it really is significant, right? When you think about the numbers in in relation to each other, the venture capital community put $60 billion to work last year into companies. Those companies need to put in first of a kind projects out the door. They would take $30 billion from us, and they would match it with probably $30 billion of their venture capital, right, as equity. And we'd put in, let's say, 50% debt, right? And so, so that would be $60 billion of first-of-a-kind projects. And then that would then cascade into second through fifth projects, EPC excellence, learning curve, right, like the six cumulative doublings of, of experience. And a lot of that learning curve actually comes from a mixture of state and federal policy, right? So the federal government generally likes to give them tax credits and, you know, maybe some demonstration dollars, which we have in the new Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. And then the state is the one that like does more of the mandates. So for instance, you're seeing California, New York, and New Jersey right now looking at green cement mandates, mm -hmm. which then allows us to fund green cement manufacturing facilities. Right. Those are complementary, right? Those work together, the push yeah. and pull. Yeah. So, well, let's talk um, just a little bit then about some of the technology areas where you are focusing. And I'm curious sort of when you are choosing technology areas, 
are you choosing purely based on an analysis of what you think is going to be needed? Or is it mostly what among that set of technologies that will be needed specifically need us? Like are specifically yeah. facing this first mover problem? Because like, you know, big solar and big wind, I presume, have now grown past the need for for you. <laughs> In most cases, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so, so what are the kind of what are the on the verge but not quite first big demonstration yet technologies that you're looking around on. There's one I want to hone in on, but I'd like to hear kind of a survey. Yeah, sure. So the process that we went through was we looked at all of the different sectors where we thought that the technology itself was actually mature and commercialization was really a problem. So we needed to lean in. So these are things like low impact hydro, advanced geothermal, um, you know, some of the battery chemistries that have been around for some time, mm. you know, you've seen them SPAC, hydrogen, uh, carbon sequestration storage in some forms, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, small modular reactors. Um, so you've got like all these sort of sectors that we top down sort of went across DOE and said, what's really ready for prime time? And then I went to all the trade associations for those groups and said, hey, get me all your CEOs get them on the phone, and then let's, you hold a meeting, you invite me to speak, and then let's talk about it, right? And, you know, some of them were ready, mm-hmm. right? So we got, you know, $10 billion worth of uh, applications from the uh, sustainable aviation fuel and biofuel space. Um, we've gotten roughly $10 billion of applications from the advanced nuclear space. We've gotten $5 billion of applications in from uh, the carbon sequestration side. You know, we've gotten several billion dollars of applications in from transmission, et cetera. And then there's some places where they weren't ready. Like I've gotten almost no applications in for geothermal. I've gotten almost no applications in for hydro. And, w- and when you say ready, ready just means like have their shit together enough to be able to go through the due diligence properly? Uh, no, I think that they actually like are prepared to go through the office. I'd say that they don't have projects ready to go, mm. right? So like, you know, like you can't come in and say, I have this dream. <laughs> you have to sort of say, right. I have a utility. I've received the allocation from the Bureau of Land Management for this land. I've got this, I've got that. And therefore, you have something to evaluate, right? And so so some of the sectors, we don't have projects and not because the technology is not mature, but the, the developer community has not yet developed the projects for us to evaluate. So we haven't given up on those sectors. We continue to educate those sectors and make sure that the trade associations and others know what services we offer. You think geothermal is going <laughs> to... Sorry to get obsessed with geothermal, but... That's right. You think geothermal will come along and be ready for you at some point? Do you have a, a, a capsule uh, assessment of that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the California RFP for 1,000 megawatts of of geothermal, I think is useful. And I think anyone who wins that RFP will probably come to our office. In general, I'd say the biggest problem with geothermal, and you see this across all the flexible baseload technologies that comes out of, you know, the UC Berkeley study or the Princeton study or whatever, is that in general, all of them need seven cents a kilowatt hour. Right. Right. And that seven cents a kilowatt hour is completely justified. So when you look at the modeling, you basically, to build more solar and wind at 1.8 cents or whatever it is, you have to build more transmission to transport it from where it blows to where it's needed. And that transmission is hard. And if you want to move hard to fast, then you have to pay extra for it, right? So you pay (laughs) double the cost of the transmission. Um, And so the alternative is you pay for 
technologies that have more like a 60% plus capacity factor mm-hmm. on existing transmission. And then that's seven cents. But net net, when you look at like these decarbonization strategies that are finally starting to emerge from these utilities who have who have determined that they're going to be net, you know, zero or whatever it is by X date, they have now determined that there is some mix of variable renewable energy and flexible baseload that they need, and that they actually can afford to pay seven cents for part of their portfolio. Mm. And that has led California to put out this RFP. And I think you're seeing Nevada and a few other places go, wait a second, we should be actually putting in some of these flexible baseload technologies because the alternative is we put in natural gas and then natural gas prices almost doubled. (laughs) And, you know, we're stuck, right? And so, so I do think that part of this is not that the technology is not mature, but the markets haven't been matured. And LPO does play a big role in that. So we've hired people on our platform that have engaged with the utilities in their IRP processes, their integrated resource plan process, and their other processes and said to them, hey, you should be looking at these types of resources because otherwise you're just not going to get there. Right. Unless you build an absolute boatload of transmission, which is more difficult in some ways than any of these new technologies. Well, I would say more expensive, not more difficult. So like, I'll give you an example. When we first- Politically and regulatorily difficult, let's say, not physically difficult. Yeah, but like, I'll give you an example. When we came into office, um, the Department of Transportation announced that they were going to let federal highways be used for right-of-ways for transmission. And I I said, huh, what would that cost? (laughs) And people were like, I don't know. So we, we hired NREL to figure that out. And so they're- They'll come up with a paper or something on this, but they they showed me their preliminary results. And they mapped every single highway and they said, hey, these highways have very limited obstruction. So it may only be like 1.2x the cost of normal transmission, which of course normal transmission doesn't exist because it's hard to build. Um, <laughs> and these highways actually have tons of four-leaf clovers and tons of issues. So you have to underground under all those. You can't go mm. over, right? So that's going to cost more like 1.9x normal. So now I actually have a number. Right. I actually know what it costs. Now, you know, someone could say, well, that's too expensive. I don't want to pay for it. But you can't say that it's impossible to build. You can just say, well, we can't afford to pay that. And now you can actually do real trade-off analysis. So among the technologies that you are looking at, one of the things I think is most intriguing. So, you know, the, the model here, and I think that what comes to people's minds naturally is a big project, like the one that got your first loan guarantee, the monolith paralysis carbon black hydrogen project, a big project, a big capital intensive project. Yeah. But of course, you know, one of the trends in energy these days is distribution, distributed energy, you know, thousands and thousands of, of small scale projects. Intuitively, it doesn't seem like that matches your mission or your, or your capacity that well, but you are trying to figure out how to get some LPO money behind distributed energy. So just say a little bit about how, just conceptually how that works. Yeah, no, happy to. Let me give you a little history. So I'd say in 2009, when we did the rulemaking, these distributed projects were not really contemplated. Yeah, right. So the rulemaking and the solicitation around this program doesn't really cover these kind of projects. And then in 2015, we had a substantial residential solar company come in and try to use the office. And so a lot of thinking was done there on the legal side around how to shoehorn. It was very Apollo 13, right? Here's what we have, like (laughs) figure out a way to make this work. 
um, which was great. And then there was other folks too, like there was a Fit Ram program in California, and so one of the companies came in to do like distributed uh, CNI solar commercial industrial solar. And so we had some stuff to work off of. And so when I came in, I said, look, we're going to get a lot of applications that look like this. Let's start revving that back up and figuring it out. And the harsh reality of the situation is that the government doesn't do things in a vacuum very well. So we had to convince some people to apply to the office. And we luckily got a couple of people to apply. And I warned them, I was like, you are going to be a guinea pig here. So um, it's like, so it's going to take a while to process your loan. And so as a result of them applying, we were able to get the nitty gritty details around what they needed and where they ran afoul of our existing rules. And then we were able to review those existing rules and see whether those were in the statute, meaning they came from Congress, or whether they were self, like self-imposed restrictions. And it turns out that the vast majority of them were self-imposed restrictions. And so we have gone through a long process to rewrite the solicitation and to broaden and update it, frankly, for modern times. It hasn't been really substantially updated since 2009. And that then allows us to do a lot more of these. And we still have an innovation mandate, right? So you can imagine, I can't just do standard solar and wind projects that are distributed in nature or you know, whatever it is. And so it's the applicant's responsibility to prove to us what innovation is. So we can't really make it up for them. But what they have pitched us, which has been very fascinating and very relevant, is DERs, DERMs, the sort of distributed energy resources, uh, demand flexibility work. These are aggregators, right? The people applying presumably are aggregators of large numbers of, of small projects. Sure. But what we've said to them is that they have to be innovative. And the innovation that they pitched us is this participation in the FERC Order 2222 markets, which allows for demand flexibility to get equal standing in the wholesale power markets as you know natural gas peaker plants. And then also a lot of utility companies have also offered these sort of like demand flexibility programs. You know, I mean, California and New York has used them to save the grid multiple times. And so, and you see companies who've SPAC'd that specialize in this, things like um, Enernoc in the old days, but then also like Voltus recently and, and others. And so you're starting to see a lot of investor interest as well in these companies. And so they've come into the office and said, hey, okay, so if the underlying technology might be solar plus battery storage and a thermostat and water heater and bidirectional charging using wallbox... But like, if we're aggregating all these assets up and opting them into a DER framework, which then provides a huge amount of extra reliability to the grid mm-hmm. at one-tenth the cost of today's natural gas speakers, does that qualify? And we're like, huh, I guess it does. <laughs> None of those pieces are particularly innovative, right? All those pieces of technologies exist now. It's the aggregation and playing in the market that's the innovation. Yeah, I mean, the underlying hardware is not innovative, but the software continues to innovate. Like, I mean, I was one of the first investors in battery storage behind the meter, right? And, you know, my previous role. And and that software has dramatically changed every year, such that some owners of batteries have hired a new platform to operate their batteries every year because the software is changing <laughs> so quickly. Right. Well, that's that's innovation. But one thing that occurs to me about these markets, I don't know quite how to phrase it, but it seems like those markets for distributed energy aggregators 
are so politically formed, you know, they sort of depend so much on politics and regulation, right? This is not just sort of like a free market situation. Like you can do that where regulation has permitted you to do it. So in a sense, the market's limited by things that you can't really affect, <laughs> right? Does that make sense? Like you um, can, I mean, you can help them succeed under yeah. those circumstances, but you can't, you know, bust the market out of those circumstances. You, it requires regulatory changes. Yes, yes, you're right. And I would say that's true for everything, right? I mean, the advanced geothermal market isn't going to work unless someone pays seven cents a kilowatt hour with a dedicated RFP. But what I would say is that we do have the ability to nudge in ways that are quite influential. So like, for instance, in this case, the vast majority of the repayment obligation comes from FICO score, not from markets. So people are agreeing to pay a fixed price for their new water heater or bidirectional EV charger, even though they are now registered to operate in these demand flexibility markets, they're agreeing to pay a fixed $20 a month in loan payments to pay us back. So we can, on the one hand, get a reasonable prospect of repayment without the regulatory changes. And on the other hand, the companies that borrow the money from us go to the regulator and say, I'm adding like 20 megawatts a week of load that I <laughs> control now. Like. Right you guys should put that into the regulation, right? And so, <laughs> right, um, right, right. So like, I mean, it, you know, there's like some like sort of circularity to this right. and someone's got to go first and clearly the DOE loan programs office should be the one that goes first. Right. Slight side question, but it has to do with something else I'm working on. Um, you, you know, one of the big problems facing clean energy expansion is minerals, is the availability of these minerals, which, you know, are, are concentrated, their production is concentrated in, in certain countries, which are not necessarily great. Processing of these minerals is concentrated in China, which is not necessarily great. And so there's a big focus on finding them, mining them better, refining them better, moving yeah. those domestic supply chains and recycling, you know, recycling is big, big growing thing. Are any of those on your radar? They're all they're all on our radar. I mean, it's the uh, one big big initiative that was added during the Trump administration. Oh, really? Was this focus on critical minerals? We have um improved a lot of the legal justifications and others. Um mm -hmm. but in general, like we so we've mapped out every single opportunity in the country that we believe to be commercially ready, right? So there's a lot of people who have mapped out where the minerals are in the United States, right? we've overlaid that with people who are actively getting the permits and doing all the work to start it. Right. And I would say every one of those folks is in our pipeline. And I think we've already received about 3 or $4 billion worth of loan requests in the critical minerals and battery recycling space. Oh, interesting. How, how excited should I be about battery recycling? Is there cool stuff going on there in the recycling space generally? Uh, well, cool is a, you know, like, I don't know that that is a reflection on the technology or on, you know, your definitions of excitement. Uh, is that not, is that not uh, one of the, the cells on your Excel spreadsheet? But, uh, I mean, like, look, recycling is a big deal. And it's one thing that the U.S. has frankly done a terrible job of over the decades, right? I mean, even in the steel market or the copper market, we send gargantuan amounts of raw materials to China by accident. Because we don't actually want to recycle it here. We just like right. stick it in a shipping container to Malaysia. Malaysia recycles <laughs> it and it happens to go to China. So right. one of the things we're doing is saying, why are we just like doing that? We should do that here. <laughs> I mean, steel, for instance, like we have a huge amount of steel that we could actually melt using an electric arc furnace 
right? For brand new steel, you need peg iron and you need like, right, right. you know, the hybrid process and all that stuff. But for like, you know, recycling steel, we could substantially increase the amount of recycled steel we use in this country. We just haven't invested in the infrastructure to do so. And the same thing's true with battery recycling, copper. I mean, heavy metals, like, I mean, cell phone recycling, there's lots of stuff we can do here. And that's all eligible within the loan programs office. Interesting. Okay, well, I've kept you longer than I was supposed to, but just as a final question, you know, looking back now on the LPO, its performance during the Obama years, we can see now, we can trace pretty clearly that it is, if not totally responsible for, played a big role in the explosion of a couple of key markets, right? Utility scale, solar, onshore wind, arguably, I think, batteries maybe. Yep. Um, so if I'm in 2032, looking back uh, in 10 years on, on the LPO's performance under Biden, what, if you were guessing, two or three markets maybe, could you envision exploding in the same way due to your work? It's a great question and one that I will partially answer and then leave you wanting more for our next podcast <laughs> session. Um, I'll say that in general, what I have said to my colleagues at DOE is that we actually know how to do this. Right. We've done it. Right. So that's what I, I, I'm constantly telling people this. We know how to make technology succeed. Look, we did so it. So we have written a lot of white papers out of the loan programs office that have been shared widely across government around what we think the formula is and how to do it. Mm. And so, so I think that if we agree with the way in which we do it, that forms the new approach to American commercialization. So instead of being jealous of Canada or Germany or other countries, we should just actually admit that we're really damn good at this and we should stop self-hating <laughs> and and start actually just owning what we do, right? It's a combination of tax credits, loan programs office, state regulation, and we should just do it in a, a way that's actually more methodical than what we perceive to be haphazard, but isn't haphazard. Yeah, this is, this is a uniquely American... I feel like the way we think about industrial policy, which every country does and always has, yes. but we're vaguely embarrassed about it. So we kind of not anymore. don't look directly at it, you know, like sort of do it behind our backs. And I, I agree. That's silly. Yeah, we're not anymore. So I would say that if you look at the big pots of money in the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, so you've got hydrogen, we will make that work. And I think that instead of hemming and hawing around green and blue and pink and whatever, <laughs> what we should be focused on is that we use 10 million tons of hydrogen a year. All 10 million tons of that will be turned into low carbon hydrogen. Mm. Right. And we have a pathway to do that. And the secretary has laid it out. And frankly, with all the applications I've already received in the office, I'm fairly confident that we have a pretty clear pathway of doing it. Bold. I think the same thing is true in direct air capture and CCUS, even though a lot of people love to hate it. Um, the class six wells that we have in Illinois, which are being replicated in Wyoming, North Dakota, and other places, do work for industrial emissions. I am not going to say that I know how to capture CO2 from power plants and put them into class six wells, but from ethanol plants or from chemical plants and that kind of stuff, we know how to do that really well. And the direct air capture stuff too, it's like $500 a ton, but we know, I think, how to get that down to, let's say, 200 bucks a ton. Are you seeing some good applications yeah. in, in that, in direct air capture? Yeah. So we know how to get that down to, let's say, 200 bucks a ton. And I think, you know, the secretary has announced the carbon negative 
Earthshot, which gets it to 100. And there are several people who are telling me that they think they can get it done before 2030. So I think Mm. we're pretty on track there as well. And then the one other area that I would say I'm super proud of is this virtual power plant DER derm stuff. Like there are millions of Americans who've been left out of this revolution, and we are going to get them in. And it's going to be pretty damn cool to watch. Yeah, getting, you mean um, sort of like uh, lower income people having access to to DERs, basically? Lower income people, people in multifamily housing. A lot of people control loads that they can contribute into these virtual power plants and get paid to do so. 10% of our entire electricity bill is used to pay for these reliability, resiliency, balancing services. Mm -hmm. And so why pay the natural gas peaker plants for this when you can pay people to have flexible demand for this? And you think that's going to overcome all its many sort of logistical and regulatory and financial? I mean, it's such a tangle. It's 90% cheaper than what we're doing now. So it (laughs) literally makes no sense for anyone to ignore it. And why would you not pay the money to individual ratepayers as opposed to paying it to the owners of natural gas peaker plants. Preaching to the converted there. I'm super excited to see what happens in that space. Well, uh, Jigger, thank you for coming on and thank you for taking the reins of this thing and whipping it into shape. I'm super excited to see what happens over the next few years. Well, my pleasure. I mean, I get the luxurious position to evaluate other people's work and not have to do it myself. And so... And to be Santa Claus, right? Uh, To be Santa Claus. (laughs) So I appreciate all the hard work that the entrepreneurs are actually doing. Uh, So I appreciate uh, appreciate that very much. All right. Thanks again, Jacob. We'll talk again soon. Yep. Thanks, Dave. Bye now. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.